Thank you for listening to the Crossridge Podcast. For more information about Crossridge Church, visit our social medias or go to our website at crclife.org. We hope you enjoy the message. I start off saying this. I don't know if I'm really qualified to be an expert on this, um, but I've certainly suffered and been hurt before. And uh, it's, it's not, a, not an easy topic, um, and it's something that, you know, you don't really want to do. But one of the things that we know is that, you know, Christ calls us into the suffering of the cross. And it's one of the things, there's no, no greater picture than of what real suffering is or brokenness uh, than the picture of Christ hanging on the cross. So why is, why is this world so broken? Why are we sometimes actually called to enter into Christ's suffering? There's no greater example than that of Christ, the suffering servant. And he came to serve, and we've, we live in a world today to where uh, um, marketing and everything else, and we've, we've tried to turn servanthood into servant leadership and leadership and servant... Uh, and the idea of this is that um, Christ come, came uh, to suffer. And what if he is inviting us into his suffering? What if the call of the cross is that he's calling us into that suffering with him? Paul says in Philippians 3.10... He says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. And then he says something that's hard to swallow. I love the idea. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. And then Paul says, and the fellowship of his suffering. And I don't understand that. I don't understand the fellowship of the suffering, but we're called into it. And Paul says, the power of the resurrection is realized in the fellowship of his suffering. And so, we're called to be conformed to his death. And we got to remember this, that if there is no death, there is no resurrection. And so, uh, I want to look at this, and I want to look at a couple of passages in Scripture as we get into the idea of why suffering, and such a, such a difficult topic, um, and, and again, I don't want to put myself up as an expert in giving all the answers to this, because I, I, don't, I don't even know if that's possible. But if we go to 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we look at verses 1 through 11, I think we see some interesting uh, examples that are given to us. Now, let's look at the passage, and it's an interesting passage to start with when you're talking about the suffering of Christ, or you're talking about our own suffering. But Paul tells Timothy, he says, I solemnly charge you before God in Christ Jesus. And if you remember, this is Paul's last letter. This is Paul, he's in prison, and he's not getting out. He's going to be executed. 
And he says, I solemnly charge you before God in Christ Jesus who's going to judge the living and the dead and because of his appearing and his kingdom, then he tells Timothy this, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. And look at the words, rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine. Now, I want to park just a little bit on the word sound. And this is the nerdy teacher in me coming out. But the word sound there is actually, uh, is actually a logical term. And it's a term used in the study of logic. And it means that something that is sound means that it makes two requirements. And the first requirement is that the statements will be true. And then the next part of it is that the argument will be valid. And so we have validity and truth coming together. And as they come together, that's what makes doctrine sound. And it's one of the things that in our day and age, we've gotten away from sound biblical doctrine in the world we live in. And sound teaching, and everybody, or not everybody, but many people uh, search after happiness. They search after things that are there, but not really sound teaching. Now, Paul is exhorting him, Timothy, the time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine, but you have to. You need to teach it. Then he says, but according to their own desires, they will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. And see, the opposite of sound doctrine, which corrects us, which, which puts us in our place, is us getting to this point where we just want to hear what we want to hear. And so we go to some place where people tell us what we want to hear. Then he says, Paul says, they will turn away from hearing the truth, will turn aside to myths. But as for you... He says, exercise self-control in everything. And the word there for self-control is temperance. And so he said, have have temperance. And what are you going to do when you have that? When you have self-control, when you have real temperance? And he says, you will be able to endure hardship. Then he says, do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. Remember, all this is based on sound doctrine. And remember, sound doctrine... Is based on truth and validity. And truth asks a question, does my statement correspond with reality? Is it really true? Is it really the way it is? And then, can I really believe what the truth says, even if the truth is hard? And so, we are to endure hardship. As an uh, uh, Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry, he tells Paul. Then Paul remember, has gone from a Christ hater to a cross Christ follower. And the way he does that, he's called to suffer for Christ. He goes from persecuted, persecutor, excuse me, to the persecutor, uh, to the persecuted. And Paul says in verse 6, he says, I guess I need to click this. Paul says in verse 6, He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. He says, I'm already being offered. And the time of my departure is at hand or is close. 
He says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And he says, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, not only to me, but to all those also who have loved his appearing. Then he says something that we need to look at. He says, make every effort to come to me soon. So here's Paul in his last days, and he says, I want to see you one more time. Come to me soon. Then he says this, Demas has deserted me since he loved this present world and has gone to Thessalonica. Then he says, only Luke is with me. And then he brings Mark into this. And he says, bring Mark with you, for he is now useful in the ministry. Now, it's interesting when Paul looks at that because he looks at uh, three different persons in that that we want to look at. And so we want to look at these examples. So here's the examples we want to ponder, we want to think about. Demas. Demas, he says, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. The, the lure of the world has taken Demas away from me. Demas quit. Why? Well, following Christ is hard. We are reminded by, we are reminded by Paul that the Christian life is a hard life, that we are called, and maybe we're called to suffer. And that's a hard thing to swallow because we really want our lives to be perfect, don't we? We want everything to be just right. But what if, what if we are called to actually suffer? And then he talks about Demas. And then he talked about Mark. And if you remember John Mark, John Mark is the one who got scared and went home to Mama when he was on that first missionary journey with Paul. And remember Paul and Barnabas, uh, they get out on the, on the first missionary journey. And Mark gets scared. Things get hard. And what does he do? He takes off and heads for home. And then there's something really cool that happens. In the second missionary journey, um, Paul told Mark, you cannot go with us. There's no end world to go. You're, just, you're not fit. You're too much of a baby. You can't go with us. He had left the ministry. Then Paul, if you remember, Paul chose Silas to go with him. And Barnabas, Barnabas says, no, we, we need Mark to go with us. And Paul says, no, he's not going. And so what happens? Paul and Barnabas split, and we get the gospel going in two different areas. And the gospel is going. And Barnabas takes Mark. Here's Mark, Mark the guy that got so scared, he just couldn't take it anymore. Now he's back on the mission field. He knows what it's like now. He knows it's going to be tough. And what does Paul tell Mark? He says, he tells, he tells uh, Timothy, he says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he's now profitable to the ministry. And think about this, that he says that Mark now being profitable to the ministry, and I think at that point, Mark either was working on or could have already had completed writing the Gospel of Mark as we know it. And so here is Mark, now profitable. And remember one of the things uh, excuse me, Paul talks about in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He goes in and he says, um, you know, bring the parchments with you. Bring, bring the documents. Bring the letters. Bring them with you. And then he talks about Luke. 
Only Luke is with me. Luke, Dr. Luke had been uh, faithful and enduring to the end. He is there. And what do all these men have in common? Well, they're followers of Christ. We know that. But the one thing they really have in common is suffering. And they know what suffering is. And remember, Barnabas takes Mark. Mark goes off and they, they, they go a different direction. Paul and the gospel is heading everywhere. Now Paul, at the end of his life, what does he say? He says, get Mark, bring him with you, for he's now profitable to the ministry. And so when I look at this, the question comes up to me, comes, comes to me is this, is suffering necessary? Is it really necessary? What if the answer to that question is yes? What if the answer to the question of suffering is yes, we are called to suffer? What if that's it? What does that mean for us? And I like the idea in Mark chapter 9, if you remember the story of the, uh, the man who had a son, and his son probably was demon-possessed, and things were happening, and he was hurting himself, putting himself in the fire, and the disciples were having a hard time with him. And then Jesus comes along, and he says, Master, help me. Help my son. What does Jesus say? Do you believe? And he says, I believe. But then he says, help me to believe. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I don't know how many times I've prayed that prayer and thinking about, Lord, what, what's going on? What's going on in the world? What's going on? Why do things happen? Lord, I believe, but it sure is hard. Help my unbelief. And then we look at the three areas that we see about unbelief or not, not uh, believing. And so we see unbelief, which is really a refusal to believe despite the evidence. Refusing to believe despite the evidence. And this is like saying Jesus is not the Son of God. It's willful denial. I will not believe no matter what the evidence. Now I'm reminded, I'm reminded of an astronomer uh, that died back in 2008. Very famous astronomer. His name was Robert Jastrow. Robert Jastrow wrote a great book in the 70s, and he updated it through the years. But it was called God and the Astronomers. And in the book, God and the Astronomers, in the book, he goes through and says, uh, looking at it, and he says, all the evidence, every bit of the evidence, is pointing that the universe began to exist suddenly, as if it was spoken into existence. And he goes through and says, it all, all looks like that everything that Genesis says is correct. That's what it looks like. And he said, when we look at it, we know that the earth began, or excuse me, the universe began to exist. And a lot of times people will call it the Big Bang. And he says, the universe began to exist, and it began to exist out of nothing. Exactly what the Bible says. And Robert Jastrow, and when I show film clips of his testimony to my students, the sad thing is, is at the end, and he sounds like 
He's a perfect apologist for the creation of, of the universe by God Almighty. And he comes to the end and he says, but I just can't believe that. Despite the evidence. He said the evidence, wherever it goes, he says it looks like this. And he has a great quote. And he says, we've, we've climbed the mountains of ignorance. We're climbing up Mount Ignorance, trying to figure out where everything is happening. How did, this, how did this world get here? We've got this. We've got this. And he said, finally, we reach the top of the mountain. And as we pull ourselves over the top of the mountain, he said, sitting there is a band of theologians who have been right all along. And yet, his refusal to believe. And he said, I'm what many people would call an agnostic. And he said, and so as a materialist, I choose not to believe, despite the evidence. I think it's one of the saddest things that you can see. And so that's, that's the idea of unbelief. And then doubt. And I think all of us have come to the points of doubt. I know I have many times. But doubt is intellectual emotional, or other barriers that come in. And this is the idea that I believe, but when bad things happen, it's hard to believe. Lord, it's hard to believe when we pray and we feel like you're not there. I believe, Lord. I know it's true. I've seen the evidence. I know what's there. I know what the Bible says. But it's hard to believe. Lord, I just don't feel the belief. I, I, it's as if you're not there. We're crying out to you. And Lord, why does this happen? And we can fill in the blanks of all the different emotional barriers and things that happen and problems that come about. And when you see, when my wife had her stroke, It was so hard because the prayers didn't seem to help. And it seemed like it just doesn't work. And so, it's the belief that we have in doubt is when we have these other barriers. When bad things happen, sometimes it's hard to believe. And I think the emotional aspect of this is stronger than any of us really realize. And I know you've gone through suffering. I know you've gone through times of doubt. But we come to those times, we have, there's unbelief, there's doubt, and then there is lack of belief. And this involves disbelieving a biblical teaching, or you may come to the point where you need some help to believe. You know, I need some more teaching on this, and this is why I'm so thankful that I go to a church that my pastor stands here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and proclaims the truth of the Word of God and brings it down to where we can understand it. Because without the Scriptures, you know, we have nothing. And so we see this lack of a belief. You know, Lord, I need some help to believe. This is happening in my life. And it's what I think in Mark chapter 9, when the, when, uh, uh, the man says... I believe, but help my unbelief. 
Help me with it. And so, lack of belief is the idea we need help. And I think that's why, as what drew me into apologetics, was the idea of giving reasons for believing. But even though we have a lot of the reasons for believing, and even though I can go through and give step after step after step for the existence of God, or, or how do I know Scripture is really the Word of God, and go through those things, when pain and suffering comes along, it doesn't seem to help. And so, we ask the question again, why suffering? Uh, Robert Murray McShane, 19th century Scottish pastor, died at the age of 29. Literally, died from giving, giving his whole life to Christ. And preaching and doing things. But I like what he said. He said, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. And I think the sentiment is there's something for us, there's some, a lot of truth in it, that we talk about keeping our eyes on Christ, and you know, we even sing the songs, turn your eyes upon Jesus. We, we go through that, but do we, do we really understand what that means? Because when we see Christ, we realize that we've got to see the cross. But the cross brings resurrection. And that's what we need to keep in our minds. And so, here's the idea. Um, I, have a, I have a student. It's a, a junior girl, and she's about this tall. I mean, real little. And when she sings praises to God, she's about this big. And she comes in singing into my classroom. And she'll be singing, and I'll look at her and Say, man, you just don't know the blessing you are to me. And I said, why are you always singing? Her answer was, why are you not? And you see, she couldn't help it. She just sings all the time. And, uh, and I love it. She says, I have to sing and praise God. So we think about this, and we think about sympathy, and there's a difference between sympathy and empathy when we talk about feeling. And sympathy is more feeling sorry for someone who is experiencing pain and sorrow. We hear somebody having a tragedy in their life, or we hear something happening, and we realize, oh, wow, that's really bad. You know, really, really something bad. And we feel sorry for them. But then there's empathy. And empathy is actually feeling someone's sorrow and pain because you've been there. And if you look at the word sympathy and the word empathy, you realize this, that the root word is the same. It's the pathos, the feeling that we have. And sympathy, I tried to enter into it, but I can't quite get there. But empathy is really knowing what's going in to their suffering. In other words, I've entered into their suffering with them because I've been there. I know what, what it's like. And then I like what C.S. Lewis, uh, and I'll quote him a couple of times today, 
But C.S. Lewis thoughts on the death of his wife, Joy, which devastated him, totally devastated him. And uh, he didn't get married till almost, I mean, he was close to the end of his life when he finally got married. And they were, they were soulmates. They, she got cancer and died. And in his, in his prayers for her while she was having cancer, he even prayed, Lord, give me some of her pain and suffering and give her some of my health. That's, that's, that's an incredible prayer to pray. And it's, it appears that that's exactly what happened. And then after she died, Lewis had just the hardest time. He wrote, he wrote two books. One's called The Problem of Pain that he wrote kind of an intellectual look at it. This is the why we suffer and this is some of the things we have. And then he wrote, after his wife died, a grief observed. And in a grief observed, it almost sounds like he's lost his faith. He hasn't. But the pain and the suffering are so real. And here's what he said. The quote up there, yes. He said, I never even raised the question of whether a return, if it were possible, would be good for her. Talking about return from death. He said, I want her back as an ingredient of my past, could I have wished her anything worse? Having got once through death to come back and then at some later date have all her dying to do over again. They call Stephen the first martyr. Hadn't Lazarus the raw deal? It's an interesting quote and it's something I think that we need to talk about. Uh, Lewis also said, Lewis also said, but go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. I don't know if you've ever felt that. And it's a lonely feeling when you're praying, but you feel like God's not there. Then he said, all arguments and justification of suffering provoke bitter resentment against the author. You would like to know how I behave when I'm experiencing pain, not writing books about it. And here's the thing that we realize is that feelings are more powerful than the facts. And they sometimes crush us. And they make us want to quit. And no wonder Paul, when he's talking in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and he's telling Timothy, I'm ready. My time's coming. I'm ready. I've fought a good fight. I'm ready for this. He said, but hurry up and get here. And feelings, a lot of times, are more powerful than even the facts. And then, this is what Lewis said one of its probably most famous uh, sayings, pain is unmasked, unmistakable evil. Every man knows that something is wrong when he is being hurt. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is, it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You see, pain and suffering gets our attention fast, and then it holds it. 
And we have a hard time forgetting what the pain is. And then it brings us to the resolution. We have the cry from the cross. Remember Jesus on the cross? And I think this may be something, as I go through this, and hopefully it's something that helps you, but in Jesus is on the cross, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, it's interesting because if you look at that passage, it's quoted first in Aramaic when he says that, and then he repeats it. And it's repeated in Greek, but for us, we see it in English. And so he gives that, and what, what uh, scholars look at when they see the Aramaism that's still there, that the Aramaic is still there, they realize this is going back to someone who was there and saw it. And they put, they put that little bit of Aramaisms in there. And he says it's one of the things that historians, when they're looking through anything, but especially we're looking in the New Testament, we see those Aramaisms coming out. Uh, it's like in, uh, when uh, Paul refers to Peter as Cephas, which was his Aramaic name. And so his cry is a call to, uh, to the prophetic Psalm 22. And so let me, let me set this up for you. And maybe this is something, maybe you've heard this before, maybe not. But it appears that when Jesus is on the cross and he's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's as if he's saying, Psalm 22. You know the psalm. And many people think that Jesus quoted the whole psalm. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, his cry is the call to the prophetic Psalm 22. His lament is one of feeling forsaken by God in the time of suffering. But Christ is calling us to Psalm 22, to we enter in not just to his suffering, but into David's suffering. Because David penned, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus is going and he's given us these prophetic things that are coming through. And what do the people that are listening who would know this? We would have said Psalm 22. Let's quote it together. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They would know the Psalm of David. You see, they were an oral society. Memorization was key to them. They would have learned the Psalm from an early age. And so here they are crying out the Psalm. And then what we realize is that um, Christ fully understands David's dilemma and he also knows mine. And the dilemma is, I love you, Lord, but I'm suffering. My God, David cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then what Jesus is saying on the cross, I'm delivering you. I'm here. And he says in verse 18 in Psalm 22, it says, they divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. And you see in Psalm 22 the prophecy that's coming through, and that's exactly what happened to Jesus. And so 
uh, how uh, when Jesus cried out these words on the cross, it makes us wonder, how can he be forsaken? How Messiah will die in Psalm 22. And he's saying, look, I am the Messiah. The, the psalm was written hundreds of years before Romans even began crucifying. And he's going out uh, to exactly what's going to happen to him. In these days, we must remember that Jesus is crying out to the people that are listening at the cross. They would immediately recognize the psalm that we call Psalm 22 is what Jesus is quoting. And they knew the psalms by name, by the first line of the psalm. We call it Psalm 22. Uh, but they would know it by the first, name, first line. He is letting them know that He is the suffering servant. He is the Messiah. He is the ultimate fulfillment of David's prayer of deliverance from death. And it's our prayer as well is being answered. So my deliverance is in Christ. Um, if we go to Psalm 22 and realize this, you look at Psalm 22 in verses 9 and 10, and you see this as His full humanity is on display at the cross. And He says in verse 9, He says, You took me from the womb, making me secure while I was at my mother's breast. Very human. And He says, I was given over to you at birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb, fully dependent on the Father. He took full humanity to Himself. He experienced what humanity really is. And we must remember that the ultimate limitation of being human is death. And how do we know Christ is fully human? Because He died on the cross. And he's, he's, he's letting them know when he's quoting Psalm 22. Then in verse 16, I'm not so sure if this shows up. Yeah, there it is. In verse 16 in Psalm 22, he says, For, for dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers have closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. And this is hundreds of years before crucifixion is even known about. And David has given, us to, given it to us in the prophecy. And there's something about the prophecy, and I'll teach you in just a minute. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. Then verse 18. They divided my garments among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. Now, Here's one of the things that we know about prophecies, about who Jesus is. And there's no doubt about Psalm 22, the prophetic Psalm 22, and Jesus fulfilling that exactly. And this is big, and I didn't put this up there, but if you write the words on the back, maybe, uh, just write the word, maybe from top to bottom, just the letters F-A-C-T. This is the teacher coming out in me, giving you something to take with you. So F-A-C-T. And I call it the fact of prophecy, and it's some things that we need to look at. Because, see, there, there are numerous prophecies 
There are over, I think there are over 300 prophecies of the Messiah that Jesus fulfills. Uh, but in the 1800s, they try to knock out those things and say, wait a minute, those prophecies were put in later. But then they come to find out when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, those, those prophecies were already there. The prophecies had been there. And so what, what liberals began to do is they say, well, well, wait a minute, maybe there wasn't over 300. Well, how many? And they say, well, we, there's only 71, <laughs> only. Uh, but if you like, now, I want you to do this. I want you to see this. But write this number down. Eight prophecies fulfilled by chance. The chance is one in 10 to the 17th power. That's a one with 17 zeros. Okay, has everybody got it? Now, that's only eight prophecies. For 48 prophecies, and remember they've conceded, the liberal has conceded 71. So for 48 prophecies, it's 1 in 10 to the 157th power for it to be chance, which is the only game they have. Now, so here's what I want you to write down. F-A-C-T. And you look at this, how were those prophecies fulfilled that we know? Now, not just, not just uh, a few of them, not just uh, 20 or 30 or 50, but all of them. How are they fulfilled? And we know mathematically the, the chance of him fill, fill, uh, fulfilling those prophecies by just chance is really nil. And so how were they done? Now here's, here's the options. The F stands for forced. F-O-R-C-E-D. That Jesus, some people will say this. Well, Jesus fo- knew the Old Testament, so he forced his way into fulfilling the, the, uh, the prophecies about, about him. Well, there's a lot of things he couldn't have, have, have predicted or couldn't have had any control over. And of course, one of those would be where he's born, who his parents were, etc., and we could go into all those. So force seems to be a bad option. And then A, A is after, after the fact that Jesus is fulf- trying to fulfill the uh, the prophecies, or the prophecies were written in after uh, Jesus' life was given to us in the New Testament. So after the fact. So in other words, the Old Testament prophecies were written and put into that after Jesus' story was told in the New, New Testament. But again, the Dead Sea Scrolls dis- disprove that. Why? Because the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, predates the life of Christ. Uh, minimal uh, 200 years. And so... After the fact doesn't work. And then chance, C stands for chance. Could Jesus just got won the lottery? Could he just won the lottery? We gave you, I gave you the statistics. Uh, one in 10, one in 10 to the 17th power, one in 10 to the 157th power, and that's not even counting all of them. Now, one in 10 to the eighth power would be like, that number, 10 to the eighth power, would be like filling up the state of Texas with silver dollars, Two feet high in the whole state of Texas. Now, Texas is pretty big, okay? So two feet high silver dollars. You're blindfolded, and you have to find one specific silver dollar. You have no idea where to start, but you're blindfolded. What's your chance? Well, we would say not a good chance. Then one in 10 to the 157th power. Remember, we're just talking about 48 prophecies. 157th power, that's a one with 157 zeros, we don't even have enough atoms in our known universe 
to fulfill 110 to the 157th power. We have to have uh, millions of universes the size of ours with all their atoms, and we're trying to find one little atom. So the idea of it being by chance doesn't work. And then T, the only thing left, Jesus truly fulfilled the prophecies. And so, why suffering? I don't set myself up as someone who's an expert on suffering. Um, and at the end, when I'm going through, and we've been going through some things, I, I sit and wonder why. And the answer is, I don't know. But I do know this. I do know the fact that Jesus is my Savior. And He came to this earth because we needed Him. He redeemed us from this. Um, when I was in college, there was an older gentleman. His name was Charles Weigel. And he wrote a song, a very simple song. Doyle, it's one of your songs. Okay, Doyle taught me, always in with giving us a good song. And uh, uh, glad you're here, Doyle. And he said, Charles Weigel, well, Charles Weigel was a young preacher. His wife left him because she didn't want to be married to a preacher. So he penned this song in his sorrow. And I got to meet him when I was in college, and he was pretty old. But it's this, I would love to tell you what I think of Jesus since I found in him a friend so strong and true. I would tell you how he changed my life completely. He did something that no other friend could do. Then he says, no one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend so kind as he. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cared for me. And all my life was full of sin when Jesus found me. All my heart was full of misery and woe. Jesus placed his strong and loving arms around me. And he led me in the way I ought to go. Now every day he comes to me with new assurance. More and more I understand his words of love. But I'll never know just why he came to save me. Till someday I see his blessed face above. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend so kind as he. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cared for me. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Lord, and thank you for the promise of salvation through the death, the burial, in the resurrection of your Son, our Savior. Now, Lord, bless this time. In Christ's name we pray.